Chapter Fifteen of Daniel Boone by Reuben Goldthwaites. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Daniel Boone by Reuben Goldthwaites. Chapter Fifteen: A Serene Old Age. Missouri's sparse population at that time consisted largely of Frenchmen who had taken easily to the yoke of Spain. For a people of easy-going disposition, theirs was an ideal existence. They led a patriarchal life, with their flocks and herds grazing upon a common pasture, and practiced a crude agriculture whose returns were eked out by hunting in the limitless forests hard by. For companionship, the crude log cabins in the little settlements were assembled by the banks of the waterways, and there was small disposition to increase tillage beyond domestic necessities. There were practically no taxes to pay, military burdens sat lightly, the local syndic, or magistrate, the only government servant to be met outside of St. Louis, was sheriff, judge, jury, and commandant combined. There were no elections, for representative government was unknown. The fur and lead trade with St. Louis was the sole commerce, and their vocabulary did not contain the words enterprise and speculation here was a paradise for a man of boone's temperament and through several years to come he was wont to declare that next to his first long hunt in kentucky this was the happiest period of his life on the eleventh of july eighteen hundred delassus a well-educated french gentleman and a good judge of character appointed him syndic for the femme osage district a position which the old man held until the cession of louisiana to the united states this selection was not only because of his prominence among the settlers and his recognized honesty and fearlessness but for the reason that he was one of the few among those unsophisticated folk who could make records in a primitive community like the femme osage boone may well have ranked as a man of some education and certainly he wrote a bold free hand showing much practice with the pen although we have seen that his spelling and grammar might have been improved when the government was turned over to President Jefferson's commissioner, Delassus delivered to that officer, by request, a detailed report upon the personality of his subordinates, and this is one of the entries in the list of syndics. Mr. Boone, a respectable old man, just and impartial, he has already, since I appointed him, offered his resignation owing to his infirmities. Believing I know his probity, I have induced him to remain, in view of my confidence in him, for the public good. Boone's knowledge did not extend to law books, but he had a strong sense of justice, and during his four years of office passed upon the petty disputes of his neighbors with such absolute fairness as to win popular approbation. His methods were as primitive and arbitrary as those of an Oriental Pasha. His penalties frequently consisted of lashes on the bare back, well laid on. He would observe no rules of evidence, saying he wished only to know the truth, and sometimes both parties to a suit were compelled to divide the costs and be gone. The French settlers had a fondness for taking their quarrels to court, but the decisions of the good-hearted syndic of Femme Osage, based solely upon common sense in the rough, were respected as if coming from a supreme bench his contemporary said that in no other office ever held by the great rifleman did he give such evidence of undisguised satisfaction or display so great dignity as in this role of magistrate 
showing newly arrived American immigrants to desirable tracts of land was one of his most agreeable duties. When thus tendering the hospitalities of the country to strangers, it was remarked that our patriarch played the Spanish Don to perfection. In October 1800, Spain agreed to deliver Louisiana to France, but the latter found it impracticable at that time to take possession of the territory. By the Treaty of April 30, 1803, the United States, long eager to secure for the West the open navigation of the Mississippi, purchased the rights of France. It was necessary to go through the form, both in New Orleans and in St. Louis, of transfer by Spain to France, and then by France to the United States. The former ceremony took place in St. Louis, the capital of Upper Louisiana, upon the 9th of March, 1804, and the latter upon the following day. Daniel Boone's authority as a Spanish magistrate ended when the flag of his adopted country was hauled down for the last time in the valley of the Mississippi. The coming of the Americans into power was welcomed by few of the people of Louisiana. The French had slight patience with the land-grabbing temper of the Yankees, who were eager to cut down the forests, to open up farms, to build towns, to extend commerce, to erect factories, to inaugurate a reign of noise and bustle and avarice. Neither did men of the boon type, who had become Spanish subjects in order to avoid the crowds, to get and to keep cheap lands, to avoid taxes, to hunt big game, and to live a simple Arcadian life, at all enjoy the sudden crossing of the Mississippi River, which they had vainly hoped to maintain as a perpetual barrier to so-called progress. Our hero soon had still greater reason for lamenting the advent of the new regime. His sad experience with lands in Kentucky had not taught him prudence. When the United States Commission came to examine the titles of Louisiana settlers to the claims which they held, it was discovered that Boone had failed properly to enter the tract which had been ceded to him by Delassus. The signature of the lieutenant governor was sufficient to ensure a temporary holding, but a permanent session required the approval of the governor at New Orleans. This Boone failed to obtain. Being misled, he afterwards stated, by the assertion of Delassus, that so important an officer as a syndic need not take such precautions, for he would never be disturbed. The commissioners, while highly respecting him, were regretfully obliged, under the terms of the treaty, to dispossess the old pioneer, who again found himself landless. Six years later, 1810, Congress tardily hearkened to his pathetic appeal, backed by the resolutions of the Kentucky legislature, and confirmed his Spanish grant in words of praise for the man who has opened the way to millions of his fellow men. By the time he was seventy years old, Boone's skill as a hunter had somewhat lessened. His eyes had lost their phenomenal strength. He could no longer perform those nice feats of marksmanship for which in his prime he had attained wide celebrity, and rheumatism made him less agile. But, as a trapper, he was still unexcelled, and for many years made long trips into the western wilderness, even into far-off Kansas, and at least once, 1814, when eighty years old, to the great game fields of the Yellowstone. Upon such expeditions, often lasting several months, he was accompanied by one or more of his sons, by his son-in-law, Flanders Calloway, or by an old Indian servant who was sworn to bring his master back to the Femme Osage, dead or alive, for, curiously enough, this wandering son of the wilderness ever yearned for a burial near home. B. 
beaver skins, which were his chief desire, were then worth nine dollars each in the St. Louis market. He appears to have amassed a considerable sum from this source, and from the sale of his land grant to his sons, and in 1810 we find him in Kentucky paying his debts. This accomplished, tradition says that he had remaining only fifty cents, but he gloried in the fact that he was at last square with the world, and returned to Missouri exultant. The War of 1812-15 brought Indian troubles to this new frontier, and some of the farm property of the younger Boones was destroyed in one of the savage forays. The old man fretted at his inability to assist in the militia organization, of which his sons Daniel Morgan and Nathan were conspicuous leaders, and the state of the border did not permit of peaceful hunting. In the midst of the war, he deeply mourned the death of his wife, 1813, a woman of meek, generous, heroic nature, who had journeyed over the mountains with him from North Carolina, and upon his subsequent pilgrimages, sharing all his hardships and perils, a proper helpmeet in storm and calm. Penniless and a widower, he now went to live with his sons, chiefly with Nathan, then forty-three years of age. After being first a hunter and explorer, and then an industrious and successful farmer, Nathan had won distinction in the war, just closed, and entered the regular army, where he reached the rank of lieutenant-colonel, and had a wide and thrilling experience in Indian fighting. Daniel Morgan is thought to have been the first settler in Kansas, 1827. A. G. Boone, a grandson, was one of the early settlers of Colorado, and prominently connected with Western Indian treaties and Rocky Mountain exploration. And another grandson of the great Kentuckian was Kit Carson, the famous scout for Fremont's transcontinental expedition. It was not long before the Yankee regime confirmed Boone's fears. The tide of immigration crossed the river, and rolling westward again passed the door of the great Kentuckian, driving off the game and monopolizing the hunting grounds. Laws, courts, politics, speculation, and improvements were being talked about to the bewilderment of the French and the unconcealed disgust of the former syndic despite his great age he talked strongly of moving still farther west hoping to get beyond the reach of settlement but his sons and neighbors persuaded him against it and he was obliged to accommodate himself as best he might to the new conditions in summer he would work on the now substantial and prosperous farms of his children chopping trees for the winter's wood but at the advent of autumn the spirit of restlessness seized him when he would take his canoe with some relative or his indian servant and disappear up the missouri and his branches for weeks together in eighteen sixteen we hear of him as being at fort osage on his way to the platte in the dress of the roughest poorest hunter two years later he writes to his son daniel m i intend by next autumn to take two or three whites and a party of osage indians to visit the salt mountains lakes and ponds and see these natural curiosities they are about five or six hundred miles west of here presumably the rock salt in indian territory it is not known whether this trip was taken he was greatly interested in rocky mountain exploration then much talked of and eagerly sought information regarding california and was the cause of several young men migrating thither a tale of new lands ever found in him a delighted listener in these his declining years although he had suffered much at the hands of the world boone's temperament always kindly mellowed in tone 
decay came gradually without palsy or pain and amid kind friends and an admiring public his days passed in tranquillity the following letter written by him at this period to his sister-in-law sarah day boone wife of his brother samuel is characteristic of the man and gives to us moreover probably the only reliable account we possess of his religious views october the nineteenth eighteen sixteen dear sister with pleasure i read a letter from your son samuel boone who informs me that you are yet living and in good health considering your age i write to you to let you know i have not forgot you and to inform you of my own situation since the death of your sister rebecca i leave with flanders of calloway but am at present at my son nathan's and in tolerable health you can guess at my feelings by your own age as we are so near one age i need not write you of our situation as samuel bradley or james grimes can inform you of every circumstance relating to our family and how we live in this world and what chance we shall have in the next we know not for my part i am as ignorant as a child all the religion i have to love and fear god believe in jesus christ done all the good to my neighbor and myself that i can and do as little harm as i can help and trust on god's mercy for the rest and i believe god never made a man of my principle to be lost and i flatter myself dear sister that you are well on your way in christianity give my love to all your children and all my friends farewell my dear sister daniel boone mrs sarah boone n b i read a letter yesterday from sister hannah pennington by her grandson daring she and all her children are well at present d b many strangers of distinction visited him at nathan's home near the banks of the missouri and the public journals of the day always welcomed an anecdote of the great hunter's prowess although most of the stories which found their way into print were either deliberate inventions or unconsciously exaggerated traditions from published descriptions of the man by those who could discriminate we may gain some idea of his appearance and manner the great naturalist audubon once passed a night under a west virginia roof in the same room with boone whose extraordinary skill in the management of a rifle is alluded to he says the stature and general appearance of this wanderer of the western forests approached the gigantic his chest was broad and prominent his muscular powers displayed themselves in every limb his countenance gave indication of his great courage enterprise and perseverance and when he spoke the very motion of his lips brought the impression that whatever he uttered could not be otherwise than strictly true i undressed whilst he merely took off his hunting shirt and arranged a few folds of blankets on the floor choosing rather to lie there as he observed than on the softest bed timothy flint one of his early biographers knew the grand old man in missouri and thus pictures him he was five feet ten inches in height of a very erect clean-limbed and athletic form admirably fitted in structure muscle temperament and habit for the endurance of the labors changes and sufferings he underwent he had what phrenologists would have considered a model head with a forehead peculiarly high noble and bold thin and compressed lips a mild clear blue eye 
a large and prominent chin, and a general expression of countenance in which fearlessness and courage sat enthroned, and which told the beholder at a glance what he had been and was formed to be. Flint declares that the busts, paintings, and engravings of Boone bear little resemblance to him. They want the high port and noble daring of his countenance. Never was old age more green, or gray hairs more graceful. His high, calm, bold forehead seemed converted by years into iron. Reverend James E. Welsh, a revivalist, thus tells of Boone as he saw him at his meetings in 1818. He was rather low of stature, broad shoulders, high cheekbones, very mild countenance, fair complexion, soft and quiet in his manner, but little to say unless spoken to, amiable and kind in his feelings, very fond of quiet retirement, of cool self-possession and indomitable perseverance. He never made a profession of religion, but still was what the world calls a very moral man. In 1819, the year before the death of Boone, Chester Harding, an American portrait painter of some note, went out from St. Louis to make a life study of the aged Kentuckian. He found him at the time living alone in a cabin, a part of an old blockhouse, evidently having escaped for a time from the conventionalities of home life, which palled upon him. The great man was roasting a steak of venison on the end of his ramrod. He had a marvelous memory of the incidents of early days, although forgetful of passing events. I asked him, says Harding, if he never got lost in his long wanderings after game. He said, no, I was never lost, but I was bewildered once for three days. The portrait is now in the possession of the painter's grandson, Mr. William H. King of Winnetka, Illinois. Harding says that he never finished the drapery of the original picture, but copied the head, I think, at three different times. It is from this portrait, our frontispiece, made when Boone was an octogenarian, emaciated and feeble, although not appearing older than seventy years, that most others have been taken, thus giving us, as Flint says, but a shadowy notion of how the famous explorer looked in his prime. There is in existence, however, a portrait made by Audubon from memory, a charming picture representing Boone in middle life. Serene and unworldly to the last, and with slight premonition of the end, Daniel Boone passed from this life upon the 26th of September, 1820, in the 86th year of his age. The event took place in the home of his son, Nathan, said to be the first stone house built in Missouri. The convention for drafting the first constitution of the new state was then in session in St. Louis. Upon learning the news, the Commonwealth builders adjourned for the day in respect to his memory, and as a further mark of regard wore crape on their left arms for twenty days. The St. Louis Gazette, informally announcing his death, said Colonel Boone was a man of common stature, of great enterprise, a strong intellect, amiable disposition, and inviolable integrity. He died universally regretted by all who knew him. Such is the veneration for his name and character. Pursuant to his oft-repeated request, he was buried by the side of his wife upon the bank of Teague Creek, about a mile from the Missouri. There, in sight of the great river of the New West, the two founders of Boonesboro rested peacefully. Their graves were, however, neglected until 1845, when the legislature of Kentucky made a strong appeal to the people of Missouri to allow the bones to be removed to Frankfurt, where it was promised they should be surmounted by a fitting monument. 
the eloquence of kentucky's commissioners succeeded in overcoming the strong reluctance of the missourians and such fragments as had not been resolved into dust were removed amid much display but in their new abiding-place they were again the victims of indifference it was not until eighteen eighty thirty-five years later that the present monument was erected we have seen that daniel boone was neither the first explorer nor the first settler of kentucky the trans-allegheny wilds had been trodden by many before him even if he was piloted through cumberland gap by finley and harrodsburg has nearly a year's priority over boonesborough he had not the intellect of clark or of logan and his services in the defense of the country were of less importance than theirs he was not a constructive agent of civilization but in the minds of most americans there is a pathetic romantic interest attaching to boone that is associated with few if any others of the early kentuckians his migrations in the vanguard of settlement into north carolina kentucky west virginia and missouri each in their turn his heroic wanderings in search of game and fresh lands, his activity and numerous thrilling adventures during nearly a half-century of border warfare, his successive failures to acquire a legal foothold in the wilderness to which he had piloted others, his persistent efforts to escape the civilization of which he had been the forerunner, his sunny temper amid trials of the sort that made of Clark a plotter and a misanthrope, his sterling integrity, his serene old age. All these have conspired to make for Daniel Boone a place in American history as one of the most lovable and picturesque of our popular heroes. Indeed, the typical backwoodsman of the Trans-Allegheny region. End of chapter 15 Recording by William Tomko End of Daniel Boone by Reuben Goldthwaites